Good morning. It's so good to be here uh, in Orlando, Florida, God's holy land, with palm trees. <laughs> um, I first uh, want to say thank you to the Evans family um, for making this lectureship possible. Uh, I know this institution is grateful uh, to you, and um, I enjoyed the stories last night, <laughs> David, to hear some of that history um, of the congregation and um, of Florida and of your family. Uh, these, these lectures, um, the, the Evans lecture, it's a unique genre, okay? So they're preaching lectures. And that means they are lectures on preaching, um, but it also means that these lectures may also preach. <laughs> Is that okay? So there, there's, <laughs> it's a mixed genre. So that's my, my approach today. And I would um, be remiss if I didn't say uh, thank you to Dean Frymeyer um, and Joni Frymeyer for their hospitality and for the invitation to be here. Um, God bless you both. He is the uh, pontiff <laughs> in many ways. So um, you heard a creative rendition of the scripture um, to begin to help us enter into this space around the title for this lecture, A Weeping Word, A Weeping Word, Learning from Jeremiah and Jesus. Soon will be done with the troubles of the world, the troubles of the world, the troubles of this old world. Soon will be done with the troubles of this world going home to live with God no with God, soon will be done with the troubles of the world, going home 
to live with God. It was December 20th, 2005, in San Jose, California, five days before Christmas. The mall parking lots were full of people doing last-minute shopping. Churches were getting ready for an overflow crowd at Christmas Eve and Christmas Day services. Pastors were putting their best foot forward in their sermon preparations in anticipation of those who only attend church service once a year. People were excited for the advent of Christ. The party mood filled the air. I, on the other hand, was getting ready for something else. Not the celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ, but the lament of the death of my 10-year-old niece, Christiana, who died from a rare disease with a long name that shortens the life out of three out of one million children. Juvenile dermatomyositis, just the name kills you. At the end of her life, ivy needles were her nails, and the hospital bed was her cross. There I was, a minister of the gospel, and Uncle Luke preparing to officiate the graveside ceremony of my niece, like Jesus who wept at the tomb of Lazarus, causing onlookers to say, see how he loved him. We wept at the tomb of Christiana as a sign of our love for her. For as Nicholas Wolterstorff says in his book, Lament for a Son, every lament is a love song. However, it appeared that not everyone sang the same song of the Spirit at the cemetery. There were those, even ordained ministers and preachers of the gospel, who appeared to be afraid to lament and allow the Spirit to groan through them by their overemphasis on celebrating the fact that my niece was now in glory and in heaven with God. They highlighted the hope of the resurrection at Easter, but ignored the lament of the Good Friday crucifixion. There were pleas for personal salvation to be heaven-bound, which seemed to me to be no good to those of us left on earth to weep the loss of Christiana. This sermonic altar call in front of my niece's casket caused me not only to weep over losing her, but to weep the loss of lament, the spirit song. On that particular day, lament was taken off of life support and died because the life of the Spirit was quenched and squeezed out of the sermonette. There was no sense that the Spirit manifests through laments and not solely celebrations. Thus, the breath of expression found in the Spirit was absent because no sign of lament was present in that sermon, due to it being disturbingly overwhelmed with celebrations for those who raised their hands to take the heaven-bound train. It was as if Christiana's life of love didn't even matter and was not going to be missed. Did Christiana just die or what? Why even at a graveside service are some Christians afraid to lament and engage in the size of the spirit? Have they forgotten that lament is a love song to the one who laments for us? Have they forgotten what the Apostle Paul teaches that the spirit groans? Which raises the question for us today, does your gospel groan? I recognize that talking about groaning 
may not help you in your church growth initiatives. It's not popular, yet it is a part of the gospel, and without it, you preach an anorexic gospel, thin on truth and reality. In 2006, Religion and Ethics News Weekly interview um, happened with the legendary prince of the pulpit, Gardner Taylor, and what he said then is also true for today. He said, there is now a tendency, I think, more than ever to make preaching a kind of Sunday chamber of commerce exercise. Motivational speaking, which has its place, but it isn't the gospel. It becomes a kind of opium, if opium is a stimulant for people, which gives them often a false notion of what life is all about. I think much of contemporary preaching doesn't prepare people, he says, for the inevitable crises of life. When we talk constantly about prosperity, well, life isn't constantly prosperity. It has adversity and difficulties, and if one is trained, conditioned to see only the bright side of things, then one is not prepared for living in the world. Of course, he says, uh, people want to hear it because candy is a very pleasant thing. He says, our daughter, when we lived in California, when she was a little girl, I suppose we could have fed her candy morning, noon, and night, and she would have taken it morning, noon, and night, and enjoyed it. Soon, she would have had no teeth, and soon we would have had no daughter, I think, because candy is wonderful. I love it, but one needs and one's diet more than candy. Taylor's notion that a prosperity-only message is like candy suggests that this preaching is initially sweet to the taste, a pleasant thing, but in the end, it is detrimental because life is not just about the bright side of things. If one chews on a prosperity message long enough, one will end up with no teeth because one needs in one's diet more than candy. Prosperity preaching may be sweet like a candy cane at first, but it will eventually be sour for the soul and bad for one's spiritual teeth and nerve. Candy homiletical theology doesn't sustain people's lives in the end because it doesn't take into consideration what life is all about. It doesn't groan. The hardships and pain of life tend to be muted in this bright, sunny gospel, ignoring the fact that the Spirit led Jesus into a wilderness and Ezekiel into a valley of dry bones. Living and preaching the gospel in the Spirit entails suffering, pain, struggle, and groans. And many times, if we are honest, ministers preach through pain and preach to pain. And there will not only be groaning, but grieving and weeping. Groaning, grieving, and weeping occur just by living. You never prayed for it in the midnight hour or fasted for it for 40 days and 40 nights. It just happened because cow manure happens. When I think about grief and weeping, I also think of Haiti, who last January remembered the fifth year anniversary of their devastating earthquake. And when it comes to Haiti, there are so many things that can be said. A colleague of mine, Duke Professor Laurent Dubois, argues that earthquakes, not just literal ones, have hit Haiti throughout history. Thus, he can speak of the aftershocks of history. We should remember those affected by that devastating earthquake five years ago or so, but it behooves us to remember that Haiti as a nation was devastated long before that particular earthquake. This is why former prime minister of Haiti, Michel Pierre-Louis, compares Haitians to Sisyphus, a mortal who in the Greek myth 
is condemned by gods to endlessly roll a rock up a mountain, only to have it fall back down again. Each time the rock rolls down the mountain, he pushes it up, and in the most optimistic telling of the story, he hopes that it will be the last time. The earthquake has not been the only heavy burden of the people of Haiti. And Pierre Louis, in her interviews, she says, from the native Tainos who were wiped out by the Spaniards after decades of battle, to the enslaved Africans who defeated the French and created the world's first black republic, only to invite the world's scorn, to the millions of current residents of tent cities, survivors of the worst natural disaster to have struck the country in its entire history. Haitians are Sisyphean and much more. Even after the 2010 earthquake, there was money promised for reconstruction of the nation, but it didn't make it to the right just hands. I remember those lives lost and families affected by the earthquake and those who will sit still in mourning every morning with tears as their food day and night. There are some who can't shake the earthquake. I remember those who hurt and mourn for their loved ones, those injured due to the earthquake, those who died and those who have never been found. I remember the grief-stricken father who days after the earthquake stood in front of the remnants of his own house where his son's body was buried in the rubble and he had to tell his other son, Gibson is in the hole and we can't do anything for him. I remember Sebastian Delator's family. Sebastian was 14 years old when the earthquake hit and he heard his mother screaming as she ran outside and his sister was taking a shower and had fallen and hit her head. And then he heard the, the tragic news that his grandparents' house had collapsed on them while they watched TV. They died instantly. There was so much grief and death that filled the land of Haiti that Sebastian declared it smelled like death. And we all cried. And even in this country, grief seems to be perpetual in the hearts of mothers who've lost their black sons because they've been shot by police. We shouldn't have to create hashtags to recognize that all human lives matter. Because there isn't this recognition, grief has gone viral in 140 characters. The weeping prophet Jeremiah understood grief. I know they say Jeremiah was a bullfrog and he always had a mighty fine time <laughs> singing joy to the world. But Jeremiah of the Old Testament is very different. That Jeremiah talks about joy, but this Jeremiah says, my joy is gone. Grief is upon me. My heart is sick. He voices this trilogy of agony against the grain of romanticized and traditional notions of masculinity that promote real men don't cry. Some tank top muscle shirt wearing churches endorse this machismo mentality, though the gospel speaks of finding strength in weakness. Jeremiah is a prophet who weeps. Don't underestimate tears. They may not mean what you think, and they may come without warning. St. Augustine in his confessions recalls when his mother died at the age of 56 when he was 33 years old. He was by her side when she expired her last breath. He closed her eyes, and he said that a great wave of sorrow surged into his heart. Tears started to come, but he stemmed the flow, and the tears dried up. He thought it was more mature to put his sobs in check and not to mark his mother's death in that way because it was not total extinction or misery since she was a woman of faith. 
And so he fought against the wave of emotional sorrow and, and didn't even shed a tear at the burial ground. It wasn't until he woke up the next morning that he wept for her and himself. And he writes, the tears which I have been holding back stream down. And I let them flow as freely as they would, making of them a pillow for my heart. On them it rested. His heart rests on a pillow of tears. His heart rests on grief. That same morning he was comforted by St. Ambrose's evening hymn, which declares that God will gently soothe the careworn breast and lull our anxious griefs to rest. There's something about a mother's death that grieves the human heart, perhaps because it is the loss of our first home in the womb. In the end, Augustine couldn't stop his grief or his tears, though he seems to struggle with its role in the, in the spiritual life. And I've seen, as perhaps you have too, the, the choreography of grief on display at vigils for those who have been killed by gun violence and even at funerals of loved ones, especially of children. Some faint in overwhelming sorrow for a young life cut too short. Others bawl like the Old Testament figure, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Some swallow their tears in silent numbness at what appears to be the death of humanity's future. Some want to jump into the casket of the child who is no more as an attempt to reverse life's inhumane joke that has gone sorely wrong. Grief is oral and oral and visual, choreographed by the spirit of a broken world. And we can observe and hear the grief of Jeremiah. It's, it's not a pretty sight. The pages of this particular passage of his story are soaked with sorrow and lament. He is moaning his mourning. Oh, that my head were a spring of water and my eyes a fountain of tears so that I might weep day and night for the slain of my poor people. It's embodied grief, a grief that terrorizes the body and reshapes the contour of one's life, like when a Philadelphia mother discovered two children locked in a car trunk, suffocated by mistake while playing an innocent game. The choreography of grief at that moment was unforgettable. Joy was gone, and her heart was sick. The terror of grief erupted the fountain of tears from her heart. It was an observable and obvious grief on that day. In his personal journal published, A Grief Observed, C.S. Lewis pens the shape of his grief in the wake of the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. And again, it was that C word, not curse word, but cancer. Cancer and cancer and cancer, he writes. My mother, my father, my wife. I wonder who is next in the queue. The presence of the absence was so poignant that Lewis writes, her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Grief takes over his life to such an extent that he actually declares, I am a death's head. Somatic grief, just like Jeremiah. Publishers Weekly notes that sales for books on grief do pretty well. Grief sells well as people try to discover how best to deal with it. I, I'm not sure the book of Jeremiah has sold as well, especially his lamentations, because we struggle with the role of grieving or weeping in gospel preaching, and so we avoid prophets like Jeremiah. 
I mean, everybody wants to rush to proof text Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Amen, brother. Yet I don't know of anyone who tries to memorize at bedtime what he says in chapter 8. We look for peace but find no good. For a time of healing, but there is terror instead. I mean, that was the state of the people in Jerusalem. I don't hear anyone quoting the lament of the people. The harvest is past, the summer is ended, and we are not saved. Jeremiah is a weeping prophet who doesn't make financial profits. He doesn't have a bright smile or slick hair or tell funny stories in a huge auditorium. Tears are his breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But his tears may not be what you think. There's something compelling, something honest, something real and raw about Jeremiah's descent into the shadow of a people's darkness. Far too long, sectors of religion have attempted to avoid the abyss. But Jeremiah reveals the truthful necessity of facing the abyss along a trail of tears. Why? Because grief is a part of the gospel story, preachers. The prophet's oracles indict and sentence Jerusalem for its disobedience to God's law. His speeches anticipate the destruction of Jerusalem. I mean, this is the reason for his grief, joylessness, heart sickness, and mourning. The people experience a sense of abandonment and loneliness. God seems to be in abstentia. Is the Lord not in Zion? Is her king not in her or in the words of C.S. Lewis? Why is God so present a commander in our time of prosperity and so very absent a help in time of trouble? It is the piercing question of lamentation that God even asks God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is a blues inflected interrogation. Where is God? Old Testament scholar Stephen Breck Reed says that the The crucible of laments is to trust in God even in the face of the apparent absence of God and the presence of the enemies. Funny enough, in that particular passage of Jeremiah, the people of God are not the only ones questioning in that setting. God raises his own voice. Why have they provoked me to anger with their images, with their foreign idols? The irony is, is that the Lord is in Zion and has his own questions for his people. Based on what God says, this is actually a situation of self-imposed exile and hurt based on the choices of people. The situation is so grim that Jeremiah sings his own blues note. Is there no balm in Gilead? Is there no physician there? Later in the book of Jeremiah, there is restoration. But in this specific moment, he doesn't distance himself from the hurt and sorrow of his people. He's not afraid to cry. Men don't cry, they say, but prophets do. For the hurt of my poor people, I am hurt, I mourn, and dismay has taken hold of me. His tears form a path of solidarity and suffering. Don't underestimate tears. They may not mean what you think. The challenge is to see hope while traveling on the trail of tears. Jeremiah reveals the gift of tears, affirming what a UCLA professor of psychiatry teaches, actually. Professor Orloff gets excited about people crying because she's witnessed the healing power of tears. 
Tears are a release valve for stress and grief and anxiety and frustration and joy. Tears are a way to purge pent-up emotions so that they do not remain in the body as stress symptoms. Tears lubricate and cleanse our eyes so they don't get irritated or infected. After crying many times, our heart rate can decrease and we enter a calmer state. Reflex, continuous, and emotional tears make us feel better physically and emotionally. Crying can be thought of as a physiological and emotional detox through which one can be healed. And so Dr. Orloff warns, don't hold back the tears because it's healthy to cry. A Yiddish proverb says, what soap is for the baby, tears are for the soul. Don't underestimate tears. They may not mean what you think. There's much fruit from tears and grief, and, and Jeremiah reveals that tears are a gift because they embody a prophetic ministry of grief. Tears have a prophetic ministry. The office of the prophet was to ultimately be a gift for the welfare and well-being of the nation, which is why Jeremiah asked, why then has the health of my poor people not been restored? As a prophet, Jeremiah not only stands over against them as a mouthpiece of God, but he stands with them in mourning and grief at their impending funeral. He sheds a fountain of tears as an aspect of his prophetic work. His grief is prophetic because he refuses to be silent in the face of horror and terror and injustice. Elsewhere, we hear him say earlier that the word is like fire shut up in his bones. He doesn't shrink back from voicing the raw grief of life. There's passionate candor, and prophetic grief is a form of lament that boldly proclaims life is not right. Tears can represent a torn heart, but this type of tear-filled grief and crying in pathos is the ultimate form of criticism. One may shed tears because one refuses to shrink back from struggle and pain. Joy is gone, but gospel hope is not. Prophetic grief tells it like it is, and it acknowledges like the poet Langston Hughes, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. But this ministry of grief is the embrace of weeping and lamentation as a part of our spiritual homiletical repertoire and in the process helps others engage their experiences of suffering honestly rather than respond with numbness, fear, self-deception, and the denial of reality. Prophetic grief is poetic and can be a theological chronicle of communal catastrophe expressed lyrically. Jeremiah realized the words of this hymn, we have come over a way that with tears has been watered. Jeremiah isn't afraid to name his and his people's sorrows because every teardrop is a prophetic act of resistance against the way life is and a prayer for something better because of his faith in God. Is there no balm in Gilead? Prophetic grief doesn't leave God off the hook. It interrogates the goodness of God. Is there no physician there? Questioning God is a part of Christian spirituality in which we recognize that many times there are more questions than answers and it takes courage to ask God anything, especially when we may not receive the answer we want or any answer at all. But prophet Jeremiah still courageously asked the question because he believes so deeply in the loving reality of God. He doesn't ask in unbelief. He asks because he believes with deep abiding faith. 
he asks, is there no balm in Gilead? Because he does believe God is present, though he experiences theological dissonance and that he can't make sense of the hurt of his people. Yet he hopes because there is a sense that catastrophic events do not undermine the credibility of God. Prophets and preachers are prisoners of hope, not just bearers of bad news. Their tears are rooted in a hope in God. And and when Jeremiah is called, he's called to, to, to pluck up and pull down, to build and to plant, judgment and restoration. Warnings of doom, but always followed by promises of hope. The prophetic ministry of grief is hopeful. Those who do not grieve cannot truly hope. The tears flowing from Jeremiah's head are not a sign of weakness, but strength of spirit in the spirit. All of this weeping and lamentation doesn't represent an erosion of hope, but necessary elements of hope. And if one doesn't experience some form of grief or suffering, hope is not necessary, because what are you hoping for then? In Augustinian fashion, tears form a pillow, and on them, gospel hope rests. Tears are a part of the texture of hope. Earlier in the book of Jeremiah, we hear that God refers to himself as a fountain of living water. And the people are are used cracked cisterns that can hold no water. This suggests that God is our living water source, and apart from him, we will be dry and thirsty. And interestingly, however, Jeremiah is full of water as his head is a spring of water, his eyes a fountain of tears. His weeping then suggests the presence of God. That is that God is in his tears. In the water of our holy weeping, in the grief, hope is tear-stained. If not, it is not real hope or the gospel because tears sow the seeds of hope. These tears of Jeremiah are sacramental, not only as a sign of God's presence, but as a sign of our own baptism. God is in our tears and hope comes amid our grief, despite our grief, but not without it. Hope is tinged with the ashes of despair and hope resides in the ruins. Thus preachers can proclaim like the spiritual, there is a balm in Gilead to make the wounded whole. Don't underestimate tears because they may not mean what you think. They actually may reveal that you are actually a prophet. And those who sow tears will reap in resurrection hope. Now, I can't finish this lecture, sermon, whatever it might be, without saying something about Jesus and his tears. Is that all right? It would be silly of me to talk about Christian preaching in any way without discussing the Christ. Jesus knew about groaning, grieving, and weeping as well. And in John, Jesus shows us again that he never follows our plans or our protocol. He never really takes our advice. He he behaves in an unorthodox manner for an incarnate God. He doesn't seem to recognize that he's God and can be exempt from certain things such as groaning and grieving. But in John 11, we hear that Jesus began to weep. Or in the version that I grew up in, or as some say in the language God speaks, the King James Version, (laughs) Jesus wept. 
the shortest verse in the Bible contains some of the richest theology for reflection. Jesus wept. Maybe it's appropriate that we explore this passage right after the presidential election. Jesus wept. Not because his name wasn't on the ballot, not because his preferred candidate didn't win, not because he was recovering from all those crazy political ads, but maybe because the political parties have co-opted his impartial message into partisan speak to bifurcate him into blue state Jesus and red state Jesus. Maybe because political party ads have become more important than treating people as human beings created in the image of God. Maybe Jesus is weeping because our political affiliations have become little gods that have usurped the throne of God. I don't know, but maybe, maybe. In any case, Jesus is up to it again and working in mysterious ways, and he wept. Why does Jesus, God in the flesh, weep? Mary, repeating what Martha had already said, tells Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. They believe in the life of Jesus so much that they blame him for the death of their brother Lazarus. Mary is mourning so much that Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping. And in this setting, weeping is more than tears. It includes wailing and lamentation for the dead. This is not the type of expression one may find with a child who's just stubbed their toe or an infant who needs a diaper changed or a a dookie who watched the Duke football team lose a game, though we won last night against Carolina. (laughs) This is an ancient Jewish expression of mourning and grief. Mary weeps accompanied by others, perhaps professional mourners who also weep. And as if this wasn't enough good grief, We then hear that Jesus began to weep. Why does Jesus weep? First, he weeps as an act of solidarity with those who grieve. It is a weeping solidarity that reveals a God who enters the fragility and suffering of human life. It is a communal holy sorrow. Jesus wept to demonstrate that you and I are not alone in the midst of hurt and tragedy and brokenness. God is there, even as the Apostles' Creed notes, descending into hell. Jesus is God with us even in our weeping, and preaching should declare this. You may know people affected by horrible storms, loss of electricity, loss of homes through flood or water, cars underwater, towns destroyed, long lines for gas and food, livelihoods lost, lives lost. Lord, if you had been here, my mother, my sister, my brother, my father, my son, my daughter, my cousin, my friend would not have died. But God is there weeping right alongside everyone else, just as we are called to weep with those who weep. Through the incarnation, God joins the company of suffering and opens himself up to the wounds of the world. When God weeps, God suffers with the suffering world. Jesus wept, but Jesus weeps for another reason. Jesus began to weep, so the Jews said, see how he loved him? Jesus weeps as a sign of his love for Lazarus. Not just to be in communal solidarity with Mary and the others, but because he loved Lazarus. In the Lament for a Son book, Walt Wolterstorff also says that if one was worth loving, one is worth grieving over. Grief is existential testimony to the worth of the one loved. Lamentation is a hymn of love for those who have gone before us. Worship is not spoiled by tears nor tainted by pain. Tearless praise is popular in our culture. It it sells well. But, But weeping is not a sign of liturgical weakness. Rather, it exemplifies spiritual strength. 
It is not that distorted form of hyper-masculine, muscular Christianity, but it exudes the theo-emotional depth representative of a Christological baptism of love. Jesus wept. To lament, to weep is to love. The call to love is a call to suffer, to weep, even if it endures longer than the night. And this is weeping love. Tearful grief that oozes with love for those gone from this earth. A father, a mother, a son, a daughter, an aunt or uncle or grandparent, a best friend, a close cousin, a work colleague, a former boss. I mean, now I understand why the only grandparent I ever knew, Grandma Alice, who was in her 90s at the time, attempted to jump into the casket of her baby son, my Uncle Owen, at his funeral. Grandma wept because she loved. When God weeps, God loves. Jesus wept to reveal his suffering love even as he headed to the cross. And he weeps, he began to weep as an act of solidarity with and a gesture of love for the world. But his weeping, I should say, was also a form of resistance to the reality of death. Jesus fights death with holy tears of anger. If you read that passage twice, we learn that he's greatly disturbed by what's happening. He's angry, showing us that anger can be a constructive part of Christian spirituality. He's angry at the fact of death. He's not angry with the crowd on the mourner's bench of life. He weeps too. He mourns too. He weeps angrily at death's hold on Lazarus and on us. And we know that Lazarus is dead for sure. Not only is the fact that he is a dead man emphasized over and over, but as Martha says in her King James tongue, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Death stinks, doesn't it? And the lapse of four days in Jewish belief indicated that the death was truly final. This was not a hoax. Jesus was really dead. Or Lazarus was really dead. And Jesus responds with weeping anger, dissatisfied with even the perception of an eternal death. Gospel preaching can possess a righteous indignation, dissatisfied with the reality of death. The presence of death extracts tears from God and should do the same to us. Jesus doesn't shrink back from death. He confronts death head on. He marches to the tomb. And he commands that the stone be removed from the entrance. He weeps as he sees death's grip on Lazarus. He weeps because he knows that there's more to God's realm and he yearns for life. He weeps and aches because he's confronted with the absence of life. He weeps over death because he knows there is life and freedom in God. And he is the resurrection and the life. He mourns death as an aching visionary. And he sees the truth about death that it will not overcome his life. He weeps as a prelude to the postlude of life and freedom. And here we go again. Jesus is up to it again. The stones are removed, foreshadowing Jesus' resurrection, and then he cries, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet bound with strips of cloth. Dead Lazarus was now alive. The raising of Lazarus is not just about Jesus' power to raise others from the dead. It is about his power to give new life. 
It is a revelation of who he is as the resurrection and the life. In other words, God demonstrates in Jesus how he will defeat death once and for all and send hell to hell. When Jesus wept, he signaled that deliverance was about to come. And boy, did he deliver Lazarus. Not only did he raise him and give him new life, he set him free. Did you catch what he says? Unbind him and let him go. And isn't that what gospel preaching is supposed to do? Set people free? Unbind him and let him go. Jesus knew that people could be walking around the streets of Orlando or even attending the seminary and still be bound. So unbind him and let him go. Death's grip was stripped for a life of freedom and it all began with the spiritual practice of weeping. When Jesus weeps, it is the beginning of the death of death. When Jesus weeps, new life is on the horizon. And we, so we need some groaning, grieving, weeping preachers today. Not because of the mantra that's actually killing the church. The church is dying. The church is dying. But to weep for those who are dead and bound like Christian zombies. Christ's bloody tears flow for the resurrection life we will receive through him. And he will raise you up to set you free from the sting of death on your life. New life is on the horizon. Preaching should proclaim like Jeremiah with fire shut up in our bones. Drug and alcohol addiction. Unbind him and let him go. (laughs) Self-hatred and low self-esteem. Unbind him and let him go. Bouts of depression. Unbind her and let her go. Suicidal thoughts. Unbind him and let him go. Systems and structures of oppression. Unbind us and let us go. Prejudice of any kind. Unbind him and let him go. Illness and disease. Unbind her and let her go. Feelings of being unloved. Unbind him and let him go. Discouragement. Let him go. Hatred. Let her go. Racism. Let him go. Sexism. Let her go. Go and be unbound. Go and be free. Go as Jesus weeps and his tears wash us in the baptism of his love. You know what? One thing my mother always taught me when I was growing up is to have her handkerchief with me. And I have my handkerchief ready as we go. May our weeping begin, knowing that those who sow in tears will reap with songs of joy. And you know what? We are not alone in our weeping. For as George Herbert writes in his poem, Praise, I have not lost one single tear, but when mine eyes did weep to heaven, they found a bottle there ready to take them in, yet of a size that would contain much more. But after thou had slipped a drop from thy right eye, which there did hang like streamers near the top of some fair church to show the sore and bloody battle which thou once didst try. The glass was full and more. You know, in March 2000, horrendous floods hit the country of Mozambique. 
leaving many homes and lives threatened and lost. It was a sea of death, literally. One woman, Miss Pedro, climbed into a tree for safety and shelter once the floods overwhelmed her house. And some of her relatives, including her grandmother, was already killed in the floods. Here she was, Miss Pedro was in that tree for three days. And near the end of her time in the tree, she gave birth to a daughter. An African tree became a contemporary tree of life. In the midst of the groaning of all creation, in the midst of the sea of death, labor pains gave birth to life and love in the form of a newborn baby. Love wins, hope wins. God wins. Join the fellowship of weeping in heaven and on earth so that you can remind everyone you meet, weeping may endure for the night, but joy comes in the morning. <laughs>